0: views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity.
1: Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Keith Stelter. Corporate Marketing and Strategic Development Manager at Arc Energy. Arc Energy is a global supplier of reconditioned, new, and as is oil and gas processing equipment. I need to point something out right now, something we will cover very soon. I did not say that dirty four letter word often associated with hardware, that being used. You may be wondering why not? Isn't there just new and used? We are going to get into that today and also why and how reconditioned processing equipment is great for the environment. So, without further ado, Keith, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Arc Energy.
2: Thanks for having me, Joseph. Uh, Really, really good to be here. Well, a little bit about myself. Uh, I grew up in Canada on a farm, uh, and, uh, my dad worked in the oil industry. Uh, he was, uh, he hauled rigs for a long time. And, uh, so I, I worked, found myself working wireline, uh, internationally, uh, and Weatherford for the most part. And, uh, did that for almost 20 years around the world, Iraq, uh, all over Canada, U S and, uh, found myself in uh, West Texas when COVID hit. And, uh, well, when COVID hit, I had to you know make a change and start marketing myself, and uh, was you know blessed to have a good transition into kind of a midstream production equipment area. Arc Energy saw what I was doing on LinkedIn, which was a whole bunch of you know reaching out to people and marketing myself, and uh, well, one thing led to another. They brought me on, and uh, I continue to do that to this day, and you know it's been great learning about you know midstream equipment and. You know, from everything from dehydration equipment, vessels to you name it. And, uh, you know, you said uh, used, uh, you know, it's we we do sell as is used equipment. But, uh, you know, what arc will build new big vessels, dehy equipment. But we also, you know, we recondition it. And I think that in itself, they never really realize, you know, how great that is for the environment, because if you have a vessel, you know, you know, these vessels can last 50 years. Some of these ones that we find used are, you know, from the 60s and stuff that are still, you know, in, in use to, the, to this day. And uh, so a lot of the wells don't last that long. So why not use what's on the surface and give it new life on another location?
1: That is fascinating to think about. Used equipment from the 1960s still being put to use today. Thinking about, as you point out, some of those wells, they probably aren't producing anymore, but you can take that surface topside infrastructure and move it somewhere else. Now, I think we need to just lay it all out there so that everybody understands what is that difference between something that's reconditioned and something that's used? How do you take something from the 1960s and... I guess, make it trustworthy, something that I would want to put on my wells.
2: So a big part of it is when it was designed in the first place, and a lot of this is we have to have access to the drawings to get the corrosion allowances and what the original design was like. If, sometimes that's not necessary on some of the plane uh, vessels, but in, in these vessels, basically what it will be taken is uh, they'll be cleaned out, sandblasted, Break right down to the bare metal and then hydro tested any repairs, you know, if there's nozzles that with their, you know, the, the weld is what's going to break down before, you know, the actual bare metal is. So they take that, we test it, we replace any nozzles, any welds that need to be replaced, hydro test it back to the, you know, test pressures and recertify it. And that's, there's a whole ASME code and R stamp that, uh, arc energy has you know there's several other companies that do it as well it's not just the arc energy thing but uh, we feel that's basically how arc energy really started out was reconditioning big vessels and and valves and you know i talk about the 60s for for some of these vessels there's big valves out in west texas from the 30s with the, uh, you know that you can find the odd time it's it's amazing how the longevity of if it's made really well and taken care of it it will last a real long time
1: Wow. (laughs) So what you touched on some of those pieces, but what is the process to go from finding one of these vessels kind of step-by-step, if we can talk through that, to get it into what would be considered fit for purpose or certifiable? I'm thinking of something comparable like a you can buy a used car, or you can buy a certified used car or a certified pre-owned car. Is that kind of the difference here, used versus uh, reconditioned?
2: I, I think that's actually a really great way of putting it. Uh, you know, the certified used car is going to be a little bit more expensive than you know your used car because they've gone through it, they've changed small little pieces that you know they know have worn down over time and that's essentially what we'll do as well uh there's different uh you know like with di equipment there's packing in the towers that has to be replaced no matter you know its age even if it's a couple years old we replace that so each individual piece has its own uh basically process i guess that we'd have to go through but you know a bare vessel like i said we seek out the company shutting down that site and let's say it's a, a they're retiring a heater cheater and a separator we we buy that from them we take it back to our shop we, like i said we sandblast it down to the bare metal uh replace anything that needs to be replaced as far as nozzles or welds and hydro test it paint it all up our stamp it and it's ready to go so i uh, you know i think you Hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, certified, you know, pre owned is you know, we call it reconditioned, right? There's a there's a process and you know when when you do buy re you know, reconditioned equipment from ARC, we you know, we lay it right out there in the proposal. What we do to it, what we promise it'll test at, that, and that's how we maintain our ASME code rating.
1: Okay. That's very interesting to think about. One question that that I had Ooh. So as you were talking through this, you've you've mentioned, uh, I think it was, you said dehigh high equipment, heater, treater, separator, and I'm a subsurface guy. I'm a geologist by trade. So as far as the top side, I am less familiar with all of the different pieces, components and parts. That's a long way of asking, is there anything that can't be treated or is there anything that that should always be reconditioned and put back into use is there anything that ultimately is kind of a single use piece of equipment out in the field
2: uh, it's hard to say some of the stuff uh, it, for the applications there's very specific ones such as nace uh, nace is a rating for you know corrosion uh, h2s dealing right so you can't just take a regular old vessel and apply it to a NACE location. Very, mm-hmm. Now, should you have a, a very unique location where you had a NACE vessel that's already its internal coating and it's the coating is still good, that's a in, different inspection, that can be brought to that location that requires that you know H2S rating equipment. However, that's pretty rare to have the exact piece That you need so a lot of cases we do build mace rated equipment brand new however you know like i said there is equipment out there it's just a lot rarer to find the exact fit so that's i i would say the the most unique uh you know fit to purpose types like that where you know you're dealing with h2s
1: okay so basically, in areas where you have very specific material or very specific topside equipment that you need, you will probably likely be buying new. It's almost a, a bespoke solution or a fit-for-purpose solution for your your use case. Whereas I would assume in in other situations, kind of, if you want to call it run-of-the-mill. Hydrocarbon production. Their reconditioned equipment should be readily available, and I would assume it's also cheaper than than used to, or cheaper than buying brand new equipment.
2: Uh, in a lot of cases, yes, and in some cases, no, just because of the availability and you know the turnover of it. Uh, in some cases, like giant aiming plants, because they're so hard to you know. Very long lead times, more than a year to get an aiming plant. Mm-hmm. We have several aim, entire aiming plants that are that we reconditioned the certain pieces in, transfer it to an entire new location, and because we can do this in like 18 weeks, you know, the company will pay for that convenience. So in the end, you know, it cost them almost the same as a new one, but they got up and running a whole lot faster. So they made their money back sooner Hmm. if that makes sense so that's you know it's not always but in most cases yes but at the same time it depends on what kind of reconditioned equipment is available let's say someone's looking for a, a a very low pressure vessel and they need it like tomorrow you know a lower pressure vessel is obviously cheaper than a high pressure vessel if we don't have any low pressure vessels in stock, but we have high one high pressure ones that will fill the gap for this person, they're still gonna have to pay for the high pressure cost, right? Mm-hmm. So in the end, they're paying more than what they would have paid for the you know, the low pressure one, but they got it, you know, for their timeline. So it all depends on the application, right? Yeah. It you know, piece for piece. For sure, a reconditioned piece is definitely cheaper uh, to obtain because it's you know it, it it's already been paid for once. So how could you know you really justify the you know the cost of, of charging brand new?
1: Yeah, yeah, but that's an interesting point that you bring up that there is a convenience fee almost the fact that you can go from from not having your amine plant To having one and having it operational in 18 weeks did you say what is the i guess what's the normal timeline to build a brand new amine plant
2: i would say more than 52 weeks depending on the size so you know you're saving a significant 30 weeks of, of production there uh in a lot of cases so and that argument made oh we can make this one faster or mm-hmm. what have you but it's generally you know a whole lot longer and then there's you know supply chain issues that we know uh, which are occurring that okay maybe they could have made you the brand new one in 30 weeks but that's maybe five years ago they were able to do that mm-hmm. if they have any supply chain issues it might be even longer right so i know some of the industry dealing with big compressors right now 3608 compressors if you can find these things, it's 54-week lead time on them. Like that's if you can get them signed up. And I had a customer call the other day. They were looking for 12 of them. And I was they were like, oh, can you get these in 24 weeks? And we were like, uh, no, but, uh, you know, we'll see what we can do. But there are lots of companies. There's alternatives. Like they can rent them from companies. And that's why some of the rental firms are doing good. So there is always – a solution. It's just—is it, are you prepared to pay for
1: it? Yeah, right? yeah. So pound for pound, it sounds like reconditioned will be cheaper, but there is that that opportunity cost there that you can get something on site sooner.
2: Are there any? And, and it's environmentally, you know, it's environmentally a better choice as well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the same aiming plant. Like I'll bring up one we recently had. Uh, A customer was looking for a 700 GPM aiming plant, quite, quite large. And uh, we knew of one that uh, was an offshore platform that never got put into service. So we basically cut up the offshore platform, removed the skids, made sure it was all set up for land. And like I said, we got that, you know, we quoted them 18, 20 weeks for this aiming plant. And you know, new would have been over a year. Wow. So they're going to get up and running. And the what really gets saved in that is, you know, the ESG score. You know, the ESG is a big, big buzzword out there. Or letters, however you want to call it, uh, because they went reconditioned. You know, there's 12 skids involved in that aiming plant. There's two giant towers. I think each skids about a thousand pound, hundred thousand pounds each. And then I think the towers are about 400,000 pounds of steel. So we're talking 2 million pounds of steel there. And, you know, the ballpark figure, depending, you know, there's stainless in there and there's different types of metals, but for every pound of steel that you don't have to create new by going to a mill and and smelting that you save two, you know, it's basically one pound equals two pounds of CO2 saved. So that 2 million pound aiming plant because they went reconditioned, they get to say, hey, we've saved the environment two million or four million pounds of CO2, right? Two million pounds of steel, four million pounds of CO2 saved, right? Wow. You know, that's a significant amount of of CO2, right? And that's where any of these vessels that we come up with, and it's, you know, it really is a better choice if it's available. Now, like I said before, you don't always have the perfect piece available and it takes a lot of working with the company in the first place. Like they have an idea, okay, we want set up X, Y, Z on location and be like, well, you know what? We don't have X, Y, Z, but we have ABC. And if you kind of adjust some of your proportions there, you can make that work. Right. And a lot of companies are able to think on their feet and adjust like that. And some, you know, because of the newer, we've lost a lot of, you know, A lot of knowledge has left the industry from, you know, the downturn, people gone and done other things. They just, you know, they they've done their work and they're like, Nope, I need X, Y, Z. And there's no, Hmm. you know, no ifs, ands or buts about it. So that's where, you know, we, we build new to solve those solutions. Right.
1: Hmm. Okay. So one of the aspects of arc energy is this reconditioning and, and on your website, I think it said something on the order of about half of your business is this reconditioned component throughout the throughout the lifespan of Arc Energy. Do you have any idea how many pounds of steel you've brought back into service and a rough estimate then converting that to CO2 saved?
2: So we've been doing some calculations going back so Arc Energy actually, so today it's 50% of the business, but Arc Energy didn't have its new build, you know, wasn't building new equipment up until five years ago. So the first, you know, seven years, Arc only just did reconditioned valves and stuff. Mm. We're still trying to calculate everything, but the rough guesstimate right now is over 500 million pounds of steel right now. That's Still calculating a few things, you know, it, it'll, it'll, but as of right now, we're still, oh, did, how much was that? We're still looking at some of the books, right? Like I just told you about a 2 million, but that we don't do that big of a plant that often. Mm-hmm. It's generally your 100,000 pound vessel or, you know, 15,000 pound vessel. But yeah, as of right now, I believe, you know, oh, maybe my boss will kill me. I'm saying the, but It's about, you know, it's 500 million pounds of steel, which equates, you know, once again, you know, that's almost a billion pounds of CO2 saved. Oh, that's 12 years, right? And that's a significant, significant amount of, maybe I'm thinking 50 million. Either, let's say it's 50 million. Let's cut it by 10 and it's 100 million pounds of of CO2 saved. Holy crap. That's still a lot. That's a significant, yeah, for sure, right? And, And today, you know. I have my own feelings on CO2. I, I think methane, really, we should be more focused on methane emissions. I like CO2 because, uh, you know, uh, I was talking to a great guy the other day. who was saying how it's some of the increased CO2 has drought proof some of the crops over in India in the recent years. Mm-hmm. The Sahara Desert has come back and, and increased its greenery by 5%. Uh, you know, I'm all for a cleaner environment. I don't want any extra emissions. I think all the oil fields is kind of like that. Welcome green energy, you know, the population's growing. We need more energy, not less of it. Uh, Oil and gas isn't going away anytime soon. And it's, it really needs to, you know, if we can clean up our act, why not? You you know what I mean? I don't think really anybody's, oh, I need to be as dirty oil gas guy as possible. I, I don't think there's really any of that guy out there
1: yeah i i wouldn't think so i don't think i i haven't seen anybody trying to go swimming in in pools of oil lately but
2: no and the ingenuity that's out there like i i I myself you know thank you for having me on your show but i have my my own little kind of show here and it's amazing some of the technologies that i you know have been exposed to i had uh there's a company in uh west texas uh, Faskin, and they had a city drilling program where they were helping out actually an old age home explore their mineral rights so that they could help pay for some of the residents that couldn't afford it. Hmm. Well, in the end they had, you know, it's oil-based mud. They had this in town and the people in town don't want to be sitting next to an oil-based mud pit because that smells like diesel, right? In the end, what Faskin did, they bought this very environmentally friendly like pour it on the ground kind of stuff that Shell developed for offshore operations, and that's what they use in the city operation. That's actually what they use all the time now, right? Mm-hmm. And they they love telling that story. There's, I had a group that came on. We're talking about you know reducing carbon emissions. There's a small group out of Texas that sell module refineries mm-hmm. uh, that utilizing, and it's not even really old technology. It's just incorporating the technology in the module that this small refinery, which is small enough, doesn't even need a federal permit when it's in use produces 95% less CO2 than a traditional refinery.
1: Wow. That's,
2: that's amazing. Right. So the technology, like it's not 1984 anymore. It, it really is a, we've come so far and I think we still got, you know, a lot of way to go. There's produced water applications that are coming out to save a lot of the produced water and, and, I think the future is bright as long as we, you know, get, get the proper PR out there because, you know, you hear sometimes where the oil and gas industry just loves killing polar bears or something (laughs) ridiculous, right? And it's like, nah, man, like we're here just to keep, that's what made North America and Europe so successful is having access to this oil and gas. Yep. So why not let the rest of the world enjoy it as well?
1: Yeah. Yep. Now I agree with you on the PR side of it and we need abundant clean reliable energy. Ultimately there are there is that financial aspect, right? With something like buying reconditioned equipment and and the carbon savings that you get from that and things like the 45Q tax credit or the movement towards having having net zero goals or your carbon footprint as part of your 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 corporate filings at the end of the year have you seen any movement with arc energy and in that space looking specifically for reconditioned equipment for that carbon savings is is that being monetized or or reported in any way from i guess have you seen that from your side
2: so it's something we want to start providing as well to our clients so that they can work towards you know those you know getting carbon credit for buying a recondition it's not out there yet because there's still a lot of uncertainty on how do we certify everything Mm -hmm. there isn't a end-all be-all federal regulation on how you certify you know a lot of the your your carbon rating there's lots of companies that are starting to do it third parties we're actually working with one one of those third parties now to especially certify this bigger aiming plant that we're working on because we think it's a pretty good success story and the company itself that's buying this they would like to take advantage of you know yeah. those are big numbers 4 million <laughs> pounds of, of co2 holy crap like that that would really be a big you know that would move that would definitely move the dial for sure. Yeah. Right. So it's worth the investment in trying to get it certified. Is it there to date? No, it's not because of, like I said, there are a lot of, nobody wants to commit to being like, this is how you certify, you know, net zero. A lot of people are saying they're doing it, but there is no actual UN or anything right now, regulation that says this is a hundred percent the way to do it. And that's, why we find ourselves in a little bit of a
1: limbo today. Yep. Well, it sounds like there is a lot of interest in these reconditioned pieces, which is great. I'm curious, how many are there, if you take a wild guess, or maybe a uh, an educated guess, how much of that, how much existing equipment is sitting out in fields, that could be brought back to life and given a second job?
2: It, it's almost unmeasurable. Like, we have an entire used equipment division that just scours, uh, you know, plants and, and locations just looking for who owns some of these equipment. Like, there's a, a giant facility south of uh, uh, Odessa, about two-hour drive. It's near another really large, you know, in you know it's in use facility but you drive down the road and here you see a big fence up and this place is obviously being overgrown with trees and stuff for about two or three years now Mm -hmm. and we see all the big shiny metal towers and and slug catchers that we're just like man who owns this like we'd love to just drive in there and take it away right but it's a work in itself just to track down who the owner is now because maybe it was a company that went bankrupt so there is countless pieces there's You know, we're not the only ones that do it. There's brokers who deal with this, countless brokers. You can go on the Internet, right? And there are people trying to sell this. In the end, for a company like Arc Energy, for it to really work financially, because everybody has their markup on it, we got to get to the end user. You know, let's say it's XDO and they have a slug catcher for sale, you know, unless we get direct from, you know, XDO if they sell it to a broker, he buys it for what we would have bought it. He adds his 20% markup. By the time we get it and then we, you know, put the money in to recondition it and put our markup on it, they're really, you know, it's now it's price is new and somebody goes, oh, I don't want that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's So that's really been the challenge is finding the equipment directly and, and getting it to, you know, making sure it's still cost-effective because until we actually do get those benefits of carbon credits that could come to maybe offset some of those costs, you know, we, we still have to make sure it's cost-effective.
1: Interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's all out there, but it's almost like, where is it? Who owns it? How do you get your hands on it? And being able to- Do they
2: have sh- the paperwork? You, you, you mm. know what I mean? Does it have, you know, there's a a little tag that's on the side of every pressure vessel that's certified. And if that tag gets knocked off and somebody didn't put it back up and at least tape it back on and like secure it somehow, that vessel's useless. Wow. Like it basically is locked. Yeah. Because it now can't be tracked with its number and its certification. It's, it's just scrap metal, now. which, you know, there's a one other thing that we do uh, mention in scrap metal. We work with the companies and we're, We're playing with the idea. I don't know what we're calling it yet. We kind of call it maybe green steel. But the idea is to take a lot of the scrap that we can't, like in cases where the vessel can't be used, take it to a a steel company, have them melt that down, and then produce raw material for us to build new vessels with. So even Mm -hmm. when we are building new vessels, we're trying to maximize as much recycled steel in the new vessel as possible as well.
1: That's fantastic.
2: A great company that does that already for the auto industry. Shout out to them as Nucor. Uh, they're actually, I think, on uh, the, the Paris Climate Accord, like one of the top. They're within the top ten companies of saving CO2 mm. because of the amount of steel that they recycle and stuff. It's you know they're up there with Google and stuff that doesn't. You know they don't have a whole bunch of you know, work in pieces. It's it's phenomenal that a steel company is out there within the top ten. But I believe, yeah. I'm not mistaken. They're they're within the top ten of well,
1: the can, U.S.
2: Paris Climate Accord. Uh, you know, initiative.
1: Yeah, and I can imagine that because steel, if I'm not mistaken, is the number four producing CO2 emitter industry worldwide. So if we can find a way to to green up steel or decarbonize steel, which I think reutilizing the existing steel we have, whether that is reconditioning equipment or in this case, collecting and recycling steel that is already at a, a higher quality. I think that is, it's absolutely necessary if we're going to be able to decarbonize things in a way that is sustainable in itself and also brings us to that that low carbon future that that
2: yeah like, Yeah, why let it rust and go to waste right yeah like you know, put put aside like okay the carbon zero let's let's just you know one side is like oh i'm for it or against it let's just not be wasteful i think everybody know yep. can get on board that message right
1: yeah absolutely well i think that is a good point to transition into the final questions these are the questions that i ask all of my guests that first question what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend
2: uh man the getting to why recently uh read that, uh, the author, man, uh, it's, uh, escapes me. I have to pull that up here. It, it was a great book of, you know, uh, it explained why, you know, Apple's marketing's kind of, you know, is the way it is and why they're so, so successful versus, you know, another electronic company who kind of tries it a different, you know, tries to do the same, but completely fails. Hmm. I, I thought it was very fascinating the way he, he went along it. Just give me a second here. I got it on my phone. If, start With Why, Simon Sinek. That was it. Start With Why. Sorry. Not find why. Start With Why, Simon Sinek. Great book.
1: All right. It sounds good. Lately, I've been I've been doing a lot more. Not a lot more reading, but a lot more looking at the marketing side and understanding. Because I've, I, I guess stepping back, I've been talking about geothermal for over ten years now, and every time I bring it up, I'm like, why doesn't everybody know this yet? It's so obvious that we sh- need to have more geothermal, and, and then for the past. I guess pre pandemic, so probably since twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, the geothermal industry has been saying, why doesn't anybody know about us? What are we doing? What is our message? How do we change it to make everybody understand and care about us? And why doesn't anybody else hear us? And this is this is probably well, a great funny book for you it.
2: that. Because the biggest episode I've had recently was I had a a guest on and we talked, we spoke about geothermal and I had over 360 people sign up for this thing. And by the end, what really was the differentiating factor is where this is being marketed and kind of how Like Mm. the big cost of geothermal is the drilling of the wells, right? And if you can get around that, well, then it's very economical. And what does the United States have? A whole lot of old wells, yep. And so we're actually Arc Energy is working with uh, some companies and open working with more to try and take some of these old abandoned wells and put some geothermal setups in them, and let's start making some electricity or start heating, uh, you know, uh, greenhouses and stuff. Like it's it's fascinating what's out there. Like I said, the oil industry I don't think is against any of the other oil other energy. Sources out there, they just want to make sure they're profitable, and uh, maybe we're a little jealous. They get a little bit better PR than we do. You know, we always were the bad guy Nobody ever talks about the good side. So, uh, yeah, maybe maybe there's some jealousy there.
1: Well, I think this goes right along your with Arc Energy and everything you're talking about, because a lot of the time, getting those pipes out of the ground would be prohibitively difficult, right? And surely you're not going to reuse them. You're going to mill them out. And recycle them if you're going to if you're going to try and and recuperate those pipes at all that being the well bores, so why not go in and and repurpose them and that's that is right along the idea of of reutilizing that infrastructure
2: well, well it kills two birds with one stone like a lot of it is now the orphan well the fund that the government has is to you know abandon these orphaned wells that have been abandoned right and with the geothermal you put the system down there and you fill it with cement just like you would have an abandonment but you, now you're taking advantage of the heat down hole still you've you know closed off the formation you've saved the groundwater and now you're getting geothermal. like it it cr- checks off a lot of boxes it really does.
1: Yep. Yep, absolutely. Well, the next question that I have is when will we be net zero as a society?
2: Who you know I think that's almost like a smoke and mirror kind of term of net zero society. Look at, and what I mean by that is I I think it's, it's good to be more efficient on everything, but is Tesla a net, you know, does Tesla actually save any, uh, you know, carbon emissions? And in the end, they themselves, they still build cars. They still use all their processes and assemble the steel and, and, you know, even though there's no motor there, it's a different, you know, there's batteries, batteries are mine. Tesla itself still produces carbon, right? It's only the end user, the, you know, the person who bought the car who really is like, okay, now my car isn't idling anymore. They've saved it. Right. But in the end, right now, most of our power comes from natural gas. So we've just kind of moving, we're moving around the carbon. We're not really, but like, like we said, I think we can reduce it a lot more as a society, zero. Mm, I think we're a long way off from a zero. Maybe like if everything was nuclear powered and everything was, you know, very efficient batteries and we we're electricity was everywhere. But I still with agriculture, you, you need a lot of big horsepower fuel driven engines just to make make some of this stuff go with with current technologies at
1: least. So yep. I, I think we're a long way off. That's an interesting take on it and looking at where and how and what that means on how to actually get there. Because you you make a really good point that every car that Tesla puts out, once it is no longer in their hands, it is a net carbon emitter. And then once you drive it long enough, now it is a – net carbon saver compared to whatever you're comparing it to. So really you have moved and shifted the needle on who is getting what offset and who's accounting for who is the net producer versus net reducer and all of that. It's a very interesting way to think about it. And I, I asked this question to somebody who's working on understanding the carbon markets that if we all because right now we there's a lot of discussion on scope one scope two scope three emissions and the idea the idea of scope one is the stuff that you're directly responsible for so this is a question for just a more rhetorical question that i would love to find the answer to but if everybody reduced their scope one emissions to zero then would we ultimately be a net zero society? Because now your direct responsible emissions are now zero. And so that means every industry, every company would all have zero emissions.
2: But don't the employees count? Like we breathe in and expel carbon <laughs> dioxide. So in the end, you have to find something to offset and to get rid of that. Uh, you know, one of the largest emission emitters of co2 is refineries refineries i think is number one overall like i said there's technology out there that can reduce a lot of that to 95 percent of it if we reduce to 5 percent of the largest emitter is that really going to move the dial you know in, in other places and, and i would you know be curious to see how you know what would those effects be right and uh mm-hmm. And I'm like all for, like I said, I'm all for utilizing the better technologies and being more efficient. But in the end, even the best technologies for refining and stuff right now is that, you know, a reduction of 95. We still got 5% out yep. there. We still have people. So unless we're talking ultimately carbon capture, we're pumping it back into the ground. And is that, is that going to really achieve what, you know, what are we really trying to achieve at, at the end of the day? Like is, that's why I sometimes don't think maybe CO2 is not the biggest boogeyman that they're talking about. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just not being efficient in in what we do every day.
1: Well, I think that means everybody needs to read, start with why. And we need to ask that question. Why net zero? What are we actually trying to achieve with that? I've got my last question, which is now you actually get to ask me a question. Huh. Turn the
2: tables, huh? (laughs) I love it. Uh, So during your time interviewing guests, what, what guests surprised you the most with what they said? I know I have one from all my shows. Something came up that shocked me that I wasn't ready for. Do you have uh, an example that pops in your head? Oh,
1: come on. Something. That is that's a tough question. There are some that There's some guests that you get them talking and next thing you know it is down this rabbit hole that is is on a very divisive path that ultimately is is rhetoric that I don't think is is useful conversation. I've had a few of those where I ask I ask something that maybe maybe asking the net zero questions a little a little controversial and it it can get some people's blood boiling a little bit but something as simple of like oh why do you recycle or like what is the value in reconditioning equipment and that ultimately leads to some off the wall statement of like anybody who buys new is killing the environment I'm like um well no not exactly that's and that that statement doesn't help help the conversation along at all so there's been a few like that where i ask what feels like a very um a very cordial or a very i can't think of the right word but one of these one of these basic questions and ultimately it goes down to a, an agenda of an us versus them rhetoric. And I don't, I don't like it when that, that happens. Help any, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't help us get to any solutions.
2: It, you know, there's so many conversations out there. I'd love to have with people yeah. on where I would just be curious, you know, wh- why is it like this? But it would be like, Oh, that's so offensive. And be like, ah, I wasn't trying to, I just like, I'd like to know. And, 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 You know, the same thing. I I would love people to ask, well, why is it like that? And and not to be, you know, because attack, you don't win anybody over by attacking. And maybe the idea isn't really to win anybody over, but to have the dialogue, you know, at least, you know, I don't know. That was what the United States was built on. A lot of the world was built, you know, some of the best places because you could have those conversations. We may not agree on everything, but. I know we probably are in agreement more so if we go to our everyday lives than we probably think. Yep. that's my feeling.
1: Yep, absolutely. I completely agree. So I, I didn't give you a specific answer, but those are the ones oh, that were. Yeah.
2: You, you know, no, I got gotcha. you. You <laughs> don't want to, you know, point anyone out. Mine was I yeah. was interviewing a guest, and uh, they threw it out at me that they survived a 777 plane crash in Denver. And I was just like, what? How did the <laughs> what did that? That's one of the most rarest things in the world. So I wow. almost didn't know what to do for a minute. So it was crazy. Uh, yeah.
1: So yeah.
2: keeping your composure sometimes is uh,
1: gotta be on your feet. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Keith, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say?
2: Uh, you know, I'm working with some charities out there, uh, you know, sky high for kids. I recently donated my hair, uh, at the Permian event, uh, raised people, just sending money for, for the event and to watch me get all my hair cut off raised over $13,000 shout out to them. Anybody who can help them out, uh, working, been asked to be on the board of a charity here, uh, tugging at your heartstrings. It's a local Permian thing that helps out kids. Uh, if you go to my LinkedIn, uh, you know, check it out. We'll be posting stuff here in the next little while. If you're not connected to me on LinkedIn, please do so. I, I do a lot of, a lot of activity on there and, uh, look for people to connect all the times. And, uh, Thanks for having me on once again.
1: Yep, absolutely. You've been a great guest. Thank you, Keith. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and let me know you're enjoying it by leaving a review. If you want to hear more great news stories and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. We have a one-question survey that if you go and fill that out, it'll help us out and we can send you some stickers. Thank you to those of you that already did fill this out, and I hope to see more of you filling it out soon. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy.
0: Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.